interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. How over the years have you, have you changed your mind in the way on the way we speak about God, especially when you're on universities, going through? What can be said about God? How does God language relate to the culture language? Can you change your mind about the time you were in the Say a little bit more. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so I do see a general pattern in my thought, which alarms some of my, I guess alarms some of my fellow Christians. Um, so a lot of the, how much I've changed, I don't know, but of course a good deal of the biblical language about God is metaphorical. But I think a good rule of thumb should be that when interpreting the biblical language about God, we should take it as literal unless we have good reason to think that it's metaphorical, rather than, rather than just sort of automatically thinking that it's metaphorical and so forth. And I, and I personally have come to think that in a fair number of cases, the reasons that some of the Christian tradition have thought were persuasive for taking parts of the Bible language as metaphorical, are not persuasive for me. Now, now let me be quite timely about this. Um, so in my book on justice, well, so I gave you a little bit of an alternative narrative of natural rights. The canon lawyers of the 1100s were talking about them, and nobody would accuse these canon lawyers of being possessive individualists. I mean, it's, you know, it's... Uh, so the next question is, where did the canon lawyers get the idea from, or did it just pop up from nowhere? Well, then you go back to the church fathers, and you find Chrysostom, Ambrose, Gregory of Nyssa, talking like this. Um, I mentioned it to some of you the other day. Um, John Chrysostomos has seven sermons on the parable of Lazarus that he preaches in 386 in Antioch, right after New Year's. I mean, it's kind of interesting. He says in his first sermon, the day after New Year, I notice that some of you here are quite sleepy. <laughs> so you say, what's new? So in, in, this, in one of the sermons on the parable of Lazarus, Chrysostom says this, that the extra shoes in the closet of the wealthy person belong to the poor person. That's his language. He doesn't say it's the obligation of the wealthy person to render, give those. I suppose he believed that. But in fact, what he says is they belong to the poor person. Now, belonging to is rights language, an inescapably rights language. And Ambrose, Ambrose talks the same way. So the church fathers, they didn't have our full-blown concept of natural rights, but they were, they were talking in a way that it seems to me 
unmistakably recognizes the phenomenon that we would call right. So where do the church fathers get it from? So I've come to the conclusion that it comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament assumes that God, and in fact it sometimes says in the Psalms, but it assumes throughout and says in the Psalms, that God has the right against us, toward us, to worship and obedience. And that's not a right <laughs> bestowed on God by some human, obviously by some human law or practice or something. It's, it's inherent to who God is and what God does. So I'm of the view, I've come to be of the view that the concept of natural rights, of an inherent right that somebody has, lies there in the Old Testament and moves, moves slowly out from there to once, to human beings having worth and, and so forth. Now what that assumes, if God has rights, then if we don't honor those rights, we wrong God. The flip, the dark side of rights is always wronging, correct? If you don't enjoy your rights, then, and if somebody takes them away from you, then you're being wronged. So I think scripture assumes that God can be wrong. And that accounts for the passages about God's anger and um, punishment and so forth. But now there's a long tradition, which of in, the impassibility tradition, which says that God cannot be wrong. Does not suffer, but also cannot be wrong. I, so you see where this is going. I, I think, I depart from my Christian predecessors very slowly and hesitantly, but I think on this point, they were mistakenly influenced by Greek thinking, that, that I think, the language, the biblical language of being wronged, God being wronged, consequently being upset, we have to take literally. We human beings can not can fail to give God God's due. Um, so it's things like that, Richard, that have led me on more more or less specific items, I suppose, to you see what's going on. To say the biblical language. I'm, I'm dubious that we should metaphorize it at this point. I know what my Christian theologian philosopher predecessors have said. I don't dismiss that lightly. But so, so a pattern has been to, to be fairly resistant to, 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 be, to make myself quite open to the charge of anthropomorphizing God. I, I know what charge is hanging in the winds. Of course I do. But, but once you've got image of God, Morphizing is, morphizing one way or the other is sort of in the wings there, right? Does that, does that come close to answering what you had in mind? I think this also illustrates the point you just You don't have to write the interpretation of tradition to us on the spectrum. It's I, I think my impression is that, I mean, the, the, the point of worldview world reflection is to remind people that the Bible is not, about, not just about personal salvation. I mean, that was sort of the point. So worldview, belt on shown, world and life view, and so forth. But if it comes in between, then something, we've got to be worried about the coming in between. And it's, I've got the impression that some students are all about worldview, but <laughs> they, they sort of, Miss immersing themselves into the, into the surprising quality of Scripture.
Nick, I, my own experience teaching at Cornell is that in many ways I think we've lost the battle before the students ever get here. That's where I wonder if we haven't been so sanguine about the role of public school education and so on. I think, ask myself sometimes, why has the reform tradition uh, produced so many first-rate thinkers and so on? And perhaps in part because they paid a lot more attention to uh, primary and secondary education. But my sense is that we have really almost blinded ourselves to the fact that the basic enculturation of our children as evangelicals is being done by television peer pressure in public schools. And it's almost impossible in a half an hour, an hour a week, whatever, in church to counter that. And my sense, and I'd like to comment on this, is that things are not likely to get better. Christian philosophy is an amazing it's a wonderful case, but in general, it seems to me we're not making progress. That the the anti-tradition emphasis, evangelical contemporaneity, the role of peer pressure, and so on, we're losing. And the, the social science research really confirms this. That a very significant percentage of Christians coming out of evangelical churches fall away. So, Richard, you have made a far more careful study of all that than I have. So you can speak to that better than I can. But, um, yeah, especially in those areas, I mean, all across the board, but, I mean, history, history, to write a history, you've got to make judgments of significance. I have a colleague at Yale who was assigned to write the history of Yale in the 20th century. And then I, as a philosopher, contemplate the history of Yale in the 20th century. Now you've got this massive data. What story are you going to tell? What are you going to take to be significant? You take it to be significant that Jews were kept out until the 50s. I'd be inclined to take that as significant. Um, you take it as significant that blacks were kept out until... I would take that to be significant. But you've got to make all these judgments of significance. So when people... Talk about history as just fact telling. I, I'm, for, for some, for a reason I can't exactly explain it was when my colleague, um, Gadda Smith was assigned to write this history that especially it occurred to me. Suppose somebody assigned me to write the history of Yale in the 20th century where, even if I had access to all the files, what, where would I start? <laughs> I, I've got to have some judgments about what's important before I can Ask the registrar's office to open up which files, right? <laughs> so judgments of significance and value pervade the curriculum, but especially they come to the surface in what's it called nowadays, what used to be called home economics courses and, uh, and uh, things like that. So my view for a long time has been that the only equitable 
given the religious pluralism of American society, and given that neutral school education is something I don't understand. I understand fair, being fair, but I don't understand being neutral. A, a neutral view of Yale in the 20th century? What Does anything come to your mind when you think about that? Nothing comes to my mind when I think what a new, about a neutral view. A fair view, I understand that, I, I think, you know. Um, so my view has long been that the, the, the only, given a religiously pluralist society, the only fair, fair, just distribution of tax funds is to distribute them to everybody, all groups who will conduct education respons responsibly and competently. That's my view, I, I, I mean, that looks pretty ironclad to me. Okay, yeah, I know. So you're in a tiny little village. What do you do now? You can't have two schools. Uh, okay, so there are natural limitations on the policy. But, yeah. One. In this uh, third talk that you gave, you were talking about uh, the research on natural rights, having older groups, and you said we need to learn to tell our own narratives. And uh, my question, and I'm thinking about this specifically within this amount of history, but when you say our own narratives, um, to what extent will, do you expect those narratives to be based on uh, evidence that is public and to which we can expect all others to eventually agree? Or when you say our own narrative, do you mean that in a narrower sense that there's going to be this sort of inevitable clash of commensurability of narratives that will, how optimistic can you be about finding agreement eventually when we confront, say, for example, a central narrative history? And we're bringing actual evidence. So I'm, so I don't accept this incommensurability business. So I'm fairly hopeful on some of these issues, Carl. I mean, we philosophers, we live with the prospect of disagreement all the time. But in the case of Locke, um, I, can show, I can show them that a chapter was skipped in book four, the chapter in which Locke gives arguments for the existence of God. Uh, not, nothing tricky or subtle about that. Now, there are Straussians, followers of Leo Strauss, floating in the wings here, in, the case, in Locke's case, saying that Locke was just trying to keep his neck, his head on his neck. That he didn't believe Christianity, but he was just concealing his tracks. So I've got to deal with the Straussians. That's a problem. Uh, but with the Straussians, you, uh, when I do argue with the Straussians, it gets fairly intense. Uh, I try to rub their noses in, in, in actual texts of Locke. And... Um, well, sometimes it works and sometimes it does not. So um, I think for all except the ardent Straussians, you can show that there's been a misreading, a massive misreading of Locke. He was a Christian philosopher. Okay, I mean, Strauss's argument was, but Unitarians aren't Christians. I wanted to say to him, you know, let's move more slowly here, okay? Um, <laughs> this is too fast. On rights. Um, there, once again, I... I in my book on rights, I try to argue the case, not just sort of announce, but argue the case by looking at the Old Testament. Uh, how are you going to explain? Look, it seems to me that, to, uh, that forgiveness, take forgiveness. 
you can't just forgive hither and yon. I can't just decide to forgive some Af- Afghan poppy farmer. You forgive the people who have wronged you. Okay? God forgives. Massive testimony in the Old Testament. Not much about human forgiving in the Old Testament, but that moves into human forgiveness in the New Testament. So God forgives in the Old Testament. That makes no sense if you think that God has not been wronged. But to be wronged is to be deprived of something that's due you, which is a right. So I try to argue that case by looking at the texts, by pointing to the prominence of forgiveness, and then looking at the nature of forgiveness, and so try to argue the case. And so um, I think that, well, it's been my experience. Some people have read the manuscript. That's been persuasive for a lot of them. It has not persuaded Oliver O'Donovan um, to be candid. But I don't actually know what Oliver's answer is. He just says he's not persuaded. Um, so I tend to be fairly hopeful in such situations. <laughs> Go ahead. So if you say you should tell our own narratives. Tell it right, I mean. To tell it correctly. Tell the true narrative. I don't mean tell a parochial narrative. I mean tell the narrative rightly. Do you think that in many of these cases, these are narratives that would not eventually be told by people outside of the tradition? In other words, are there questions that will naturally be asked by Christians because of the questions that naturally occur to those inside of it would never be asked by those outside of it? Yes. I think that somebody outside the Christian tradition, maybe outside the Jewish as well, is will probably be inclined to go along with the standard story of modern philosophy that it was that it's a story of secular philosophy. There, there, I mean, the careful scholars are going to find themselves bumping up the evidence against the evidence all the time, but the others are going to re- read the texts with that in mind, and they will have gone to a course in, in a philosophy department about modern philosophy, in which nothing is said about Locke's arguments for the existence of God. And they'll emerge, maybe even as philosophy majors, you know, pretty much believing it. In spite of the fact that if they'd read more in the text than were assigned in the course, they would have, they would have, that themselves, not even Christian, said, this is a bit too simple here. So I think the Christian is going to have reasons to at many points is going to have reasons to question secular narratives. Now, not all of them, but it's going to prick up his ears and say, I wonder if that's correct. I wonder if that's really correct. Um, Others might also possibly (laughs) do it. But um, So why didn't I just go along with the standard story that natural rights began in the Enlightenment? No, no, no. He's got a whole book on natural rights in which he directly confronts the narrative. Directly confronts it. And is he operating in a tradition? Just as a medieval scholar of canon law. I mean, that's what's on the surface of it. What led, what led him to be wary of the standard narrative May, may just have been medi- his medieval scholarship, for all I know. I, I don't happen to know the answer to that. What led me to go to tyranny was something else. I thought, ah, this doesn't feel, 
this feels, this doesn't feel right to me. I've got to, possibly it's right, but, I mean, look, so, so I think, I think you need two people for rights. Um, one person has a right against another, with, except for limiting cases, one person doesn't, you need two people to have rights. So the thought that the charge of rights talk is individualistic has never seemed to me very plausible. Yeah, I know individualists can use it. Individualists can use any kind of moral talk, right, and abuse it. So, so that's what led me to say, ah, this charge of possessive individualism concerning rights talk, doesn't, it feels fishy to me. Rights are for, the language of rights is the other enters my presence. I enter her presence too, but she enters my presence. Bearing claims on how I treat her. Now I think I hardly say I have to say more than that to evoke biblical resonances, right? I mean this, I mean all by itself that's resonant of scripture. So I don't know if that fully answers your questions, but it's, it'll, it'll be a mixture of motives that, um, but, but what led me to say what I did, I maybe put it wrong because it may have sounded like parochial narratives. Um, the secularist, every community tells stories to legitimize its existence. You would expect secularists of the 20th century, Western 20th century, to tell a story to legitimize their existence and place. What else would you expect? And so I think we should be suspicious of, should have a Tone of suspicion about those narratives. Another historian of American philosophy, Bruce Kuklick, called to my attention, why is Emerson regarded as the apex in the standard story of American philosophy and thought, the apex of 19th century American thought? Kuklick said, at the time, nobody thought Emerson was the most important. Theologians at Andover Newton were thought to be the most important. It's possibly turned out to be most important, but I think that's probably not true either. So, over and over, every community tells stories. Sometimes these are embattled stories. I guess they're usually embattled stories. Palestinians tell one story. The Israelis tell another story. One side in Northern Ireland tells one story. The other side tells another story. And those are so divergent that you think they must be talking about different parts of the globe. But the same is true in intellectual matters. We tell these stories. And... Uh, Christians have to Christians have to get over the habit of thinking of the between Augustine and Aquinas as dark ages. Who, who told the story that these were dark ages? Well, it was not Christians who told that story. It was basically Enlightenment historians who told it as dark ages. So over and over, <laughs> the story has to be told differently. And one of the biggest Challenges, exciting challenges, to, is to tell it differently. I remember when I first began teaching at Yale years ago, I began teaching at Yale. Harold Bloom gives a lecture in which he argues that John Donne was a, was a very inferior English poet. Why was Donne inferior? Because Donne was a, because Donne was a religious poet. Now wonderful, I mean what's wonderful about Harold Bloom is that he's open about all his biases, you know. But, but it was right up front. So Bloom had a canon of English poets, and John Donne, who I think is, myself, is, think is near the apex, was moved way down by Bloom. 
for religious reasons. Over, over and over the, the canon, and, well, you see what I'm saying. Yeah. Does intellectual honesty require that we also uh, challenge the narratives that are helpful to Christians, as well as challenging the ones... Well, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Intellectual integrity requires challenging self-serving Christian narratives as well. Absolutely. Certain kinds of narratives about America's founding, for example. Well, that's, that's a complicated one because... Uh, I mean, the story of, now the story, standard story told about the founders, constitutional founders, is the Virginian side of the stories. The Virginians are the heroes. Jefferson. Well, it turns out that the Massachusetts people had a, just as big a role as the Virginians. And that James Madison was more influential than Jefferson. And Madison was a Princeton-trained Presbyterian. Um, so there we go once again. <laughs> it, is Jefferson the hero figure of the founding fathers? Well, certain kinds of people would love to have him be the hero. I think it's very clear that he wasn't. I mean, he was an important figure, but John Adams and James Madison, good Calvinists both, were probably more prominent than Jefferson. But, but I mean, your, your first point, of course, we have our own self-serving narratives that uh, should be challenged as well. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be interested in your saying a few more words about how and Unitarianism. I've, I've always wanted to claim Isaac Newton as a Christian. And every time I've talked about that, I've, I've had some discomfort because yep. Christian historians have pointed out, reminded me that it was anti-Trinitarian. So, was, was Unitarianism in the 17th century uh, very different from, uh, from the present day? Oh, yeah, yeah, very different. So, would you, would you, I guess you would consider these people Christians. Yeah. How would you, right. how would you deal with this uh, matter of their denial of the incarnation? Or the Trinity. Um, Locke never openly denied it. He just never openly affirmed it. And when people at, would ask him to affirm it, he would say, I've never denied it. So he was, uh, <laughs> um, so Unitarianism then was not what it has become now. Um, Christ was central in Locke's thought. Um, uh, God holds us responsible. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's deeply Christian in its own way. But he departs from the councils. From, from Orthodox Christianity on a central point. Um, you know, we face that issue with respect to a lot of groups of, what do I call them? Religious people. I, when I first went to the Middle East, I was utterly astonished by the following. That all the people who had been judged heretics at all the councils still existed in the Middle East. I had somehow 
I, I don't suppose my the people who taught me history told me this, but I've gotten the impression that they just disappeared and that all that was left with was Orthodox Christianity. But there you've got the Nestorians and the Monophysites and the and the Copts are Monophysites and so forth. And so, so why do we call those people? The Assyrians, the Assyrian Christians, Chaldean Christians, the whole, all of them. Well, they, in many cases, they move very awfully close, actually, to orthodoxy. But they're not orthodox by conciliar definitions. So what do we call them then? I don't know. So what do we call Locke, who, like other people, I mean, what's going on with Locke is straight to Scripture. And this is classic Southern Southern American Christianity. Don't give me the counsel. Straight to Scripture. And then Locke can't find firm support for Trinity, or thinks he cannot. Um, so I, maybe I should put it more weakly. Locke was a religious person deeply informed by the Christian tradition. <laughs> right. And do you want to take the next step of calling him Christian? He was a deeply religious person. Religious in his thinking. Not an add-on. Who was deeply shaped by the Christian tradition. But had troubles with some parts of it.